Ignite your curiosity with Austin next. We're watching Austin transform from a thriving ecosystem into a global superstar. With our host, Jason Scharf, we aspire to better comprehend the true nature of innovation. Together, we will uncover what makes a successful ecosystem and navigate the technologies shaping our future. Now let's dive into what's next. I have a theory that one of the first principles of the Austin ecosystem is that it thrives where digital meets the real world. So it made perfect sense to bring on Amir Hussein of Spark Cognition, an Austin unicorn that plays directly in this space. We talked about the different challenges of AI when applying it to physical infrastructure, the future of autonomy, and Austin's unique opportunity to innovate at the intersections and convergences of the coming technological waves. Amir Hussein is the founder and CEO of Spark Cognition. He has been named Austin's top technology entrepreneur of the year and received the Austin Under 40 Technology and Science Award, among other accolades recognizing his work in AI. He serves on the board of advisors for the University of Texas at Austin Department of Computer Science and on the NATO Maritime Unmanned Systems Innovation Advisory Board. Amir's work has been featured in world-leading outlets such as Foreign Policy, Fox Business News, and Proceedings from the U.S. Naval Institute. And he is the author of Generative AI for Leaders, uh, the best-selling book, The Sentient Machine, The Coming Age of Artificial Intelligence, and a co-author of the compilation Hyperwar, Conflict and Competition in the AI Century. And now, here's my conversation with Amir. Amir. Welcome to the Austin Next Podcast. Wonderful to be with you, Jason. Thank you for inviting me. So I kind of want to start off. We hear AI being used in so many different ways, you know, large language models, generative AI, machine learning, et cetera. Spark Cognition, obviously, is one of the big companies here in Austin and, you know, Unicorn. How does Spark fit into the developing AI stack? Yeah, well, first of all, uh, you know, the vision behind Spark Cognition was to apply artificial intelligence to the physical world. So more than 10 years ago, when I founded the company, AI was still in its nascent stages, at least when it comes to this third coming of AI. You know, AI has had its fits and starts all the way back from the late 50s through the 80s with the expert systems revolution, and then finally with deep learning. And at that time, about 12 years, 10, 11 years ago, uh, most people were using AI for things like collaborative filtering or recommendations on systems like Netflix or ad optimization, things of that nature. Uh, and those are interesting problems and they can certainly optimize revenue. But for me, the real impact would be where AI starts to change the world, makes the world a more difficult place, makes the world a safer place, makes our experience as human beings in the physical environment that we uh, inhabit uh, better. And all of that essentially ties to infrastructure. So coming back to your question, what part of the AI stack is Spark Cognition focused on? We are focused on AI for infrastructure. Uh, we think that infrastructure runs the world. The quality of human life on this earth is driven more by infrastructure than anything else. And while infrastructure runs the world, we think AI and hopefully Spark Cognition AI will run infrastructure. And that's really the vision behind the company. So all of the areas now bridging this vision to the technical aspects of AI, all of the capabilities that you need to control systems, things like reinforcement learning, 
all the capabilities you need to be able to learn a lot from systems that don't have too many examples of, let's say, a problem occurring, normal behavior model, things like being able to uh, learn from systems that exhibit part of their behavior in one domain through one modality, for example, might be through temperature, and then another through vibration, and then a third through vision, and where you've got to have a multimodal view across all those senses to figure out if a machine is operating well or not, so that multimodality. So there's a lot of really technical things that need to come together in order for AI to run the physical world. But in a nutshell, that's the area of AI that we're driven by and that we're uh, driven to innovate in. So what was then the moment that you felt that AI, was we talk about these, these you know, we've gone through a lot of AI winters, that allowed you to start spot cognition, you know, that AI for infrastructure was able to go forward, uh, ten, you know, when you started 10 years ago? Well, I mean, first of all, you know, it's been something that has been in my mind for a long time and I've been looking for an opportunity. My first AI publication was when I was 16 years old. I published a paper for IEEE Systems Man in Cybernetics. So my love for artificial intelligence and belief and the potential for AI to change the world has been uh, a long-running thing in, in my life. Every company that I founded, so I was doing my PhD at UT Austin back in 2000-2001. I dropped out and started my first company that I founded. And even there, I used artificial intelligence, except that back in the day, you you know, one had to be very brave to say this is an AI company that wouldn't get funded. What you would have to do is tie that somehow to things that were getting funded. But the underlying technology used AI and pattern recognition. And then, of course, I did a second company, same thing. But by the time we got to the you know 2013 timeframe, which is when I started Spark Cognition, the deep learning movement had gained steam. And uh, there were some initial, at least academic, demonstrations of this being a really wi a viable way forward. So to me, and the academic connections I had with artificial intelligence suggested that this was a very good time. And more than using AI, which I'd already been doing in pretty much everything I had built, I could be more public about using AI. So that, that really is uh, kind of how it all came together. In the consumer cases that you talked about, right, the Netflix, the, you know, ad optimization, the, the, the ways that, you know, I, during that period, engaged with AI. When you have those edge cases that you talked about, right, like this is, you know, in, 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 the, in the physical world or in, the, in manufacturing and the like, was it easy, easily applicable, the same kinds of tool sets, or was it having to build entirely new and unique types of tools that you were inventing? Yeah, no, completely different stuff. So, you know, the types of algorithms and the types of data sets that were available for ad optimization or for movie recommendations uh, are worlds apart mm -hmm. from, let's say, uh, you know, a physical system that has minimal data that encounters failure conditions uh, few and far between, where what you're trying to predict isn't available in the millions of examples. It's available maybe in the one or two single digit example. So one of the big challenges up front was, well, if you think about classification AI, right? Things that somebody is expected to click on or not click on. That's what you're trying to do with Netflix. Well, you've got a huge data set of uh, click histories, millions and millions of cl clicks that die for you 
the, the propensity, the likelihood of somebody clicking on a particular kind of title, given who they are, what time of day it is, and other such factors and features. But you've got a lot of those. In the case of a $100 million turbine blowing up, well, that doesn't happen every day. And you're not going to have not. Exactly, exactly. So the types of things we're trying to predict and the types of things we're trying to identify are few and far between, and those are very tough problems. And I'm talking to you about problems that we solved a decade ago. Now, from that, there's the issue of uh, building models for a large number of assets. And so how do you do that? You can't have a dedicated team of, of high-end developers and AI scientists sitting together and building the best neural network architecture. So we got into things like neural architecture search, which were not things that were being done for collaborative fintering type applications. So yeah, I mean, the science of AI, we have uh, on the order of close to 200 filed and pending patents, uh, lots of publications, and our chief science officer is the former two-time chairman of UT Austin Computer Science and the preeminent AI personality. Our team is filled with PhDs. So we are, you know, relentless in uh, coming up with new algorithms and solving problems that haven't been solved before. Uh, along this conversation, at some point, maybe I'll tell you about some of the new work that we've done this past year. But again, coming up with new algorithms and applying these techniques to domains that have, have really never seen the application of these techniques. So, yeah, it wasn't sort of, here's a bunch of algorithms on the shelf, just apply them to a different domain, and there you go. There was a lot of invention involved, and there's continuous invention involved. So, and not highly technical in this space. So this may, you know, uh, give me a little bit of rope as I kind of think about these questions. Is this the kind of thing where you're using synthetic data and creating lots and lots of these hundred million dollar uh, turbine explosions, you know, in silico, or is it you're creating more of the one shot models where it's okay, if this were to happen, how would you approach it? Or is it, am I completely off base in the way that you have to think about these types of things? Yeah, no, you know, you can, in certain examples, in certain cases, you can use uh, generated data. You can learn distributions, things from the real world, and then perturb those and try and come up with things that sort of kind of look similar, but also tend towards situations that might not have occurred in the real world. You can also augment with physics-based models and a lot of the explainability that you need you have deep learning models, physics-based models uh, running together. You can use simulation environments such as training gyms that uh, reinforcement learning policies that are being evolved. Uh, they make use of to come up with data in that uh, you know simulated environment. So there's a lot of stuff that you can do, but then you also can work on fundamentally different algorithms that kind of turn the problem around and aren't looking to predict the event that never happens that are trying to learn a lot about what mostly happens, which is learning more about normal than learning as much about abnormal. And then being able to use a variety of techniques to project abnormality as a, you know, a delta from that normal profile and what that might mean. So I would tell you that it's, it's a lot of different techniques, including the ones that you've talked about. So then when you're dealing with the the manufacturing or the, the the real world then is it about optimizing 
the productivity then instead, like you said, you focused on the normality. So is it optimizing productivity so that it stays within the green zone and you're not, as you said, trying to have the turbine not explode, but instead of saying, get to the best possible outcome? Sure. Yeah, so once you understand a system as a, as a system that moves between states, then one state is just normal. One state might be highly optimal. One state might be close to failure. One state might be close to failure of a certain kind. And then it's a question of you've got this kind of latent space, a multidimensional space made up of tens of thousands of variables that characterize the operation of the system. And you can see this point move in 10,000 dimensional space uh, where uh, parts of the space are uh, indicative of how the machine is doing, uh, including optimality, including inherent failure, including normal, including shutdown, including new startup and all of these types of things. So then you basically map that problem into this higher dimensional space and you try and figure out, well, how do you get this point to move to areas of that space that are advantageous? To put this in practical terms, I mean, this is a mathematical conception of the problem, but to put this in practical terms, for example, one of our clients is a huge manufacturer of cement. And when you do that, you consume a lot of energy. So cement production is is notorious for consuming a lot of uh, electricity. Many of these cement plants have captive power generation facilities that are just supplying megawatts of power just to their own cement uh, production uh, line. So saving some electricity there is an optimization problem. It's not a failure prediction problem. Right. So we do that with REI. Of course, we do predictive maintenance. We also do prescriptive maintenance, which then brings in not just uh, variables such as, you know, the sensors that you use to make a uh, an educated guess about how the machine is doing and then feed that to neural networks that then project the sum total of all of those values as a point in latent space. But you can also now ingest text. And so that goes back to the multimodality and that gets into prescriptive maintenance. So systems that we do now, they'll take in vibration data, temperature data, RPM data, all sorts of things that you can possibly measure numerically, but also visual data. You know, we've got a product called Visual Advisor so that via product can actually look at a system and tell you uh, about you know, areas that it's trending. It can look at safety. It can look at a lot of those things. And then you can combine all of these things uh, along with text. Our generative suite can in, in, can um, process trouble tickets, can process manuals. And when all of that comes together, you're not just doing predictive maintenance, i.e. telling somebody when a problem might happen. You're also doing prescriptive maintenance, which is to say this might happen and here's what you can do to fix it. And then you're also doing instructive, which is using uh, mixed reality to overlay onto the machine exactly what needs to be done to solve a problem that hasn't even come up yet. So this is a very holistic kind of a system. And we're now applying AI to many parts of this chain from prediction to prescription to the instructions and also optimization. And optimization, not just at the level of a single machine, but optimization at the level of an entire facility. When you think about wind, uh, you have a large number of wind turbines and you can optimize one, but that doesn't mean you've optimized the field. What you want to do is optimize the entire facility. So we have products and we work with leading wind companies to do things like that too. So when I think about a lot of these types of very physical, like manufacturing industries, 
where are you thinking on the is the adoption of these types of technologies? I mean, are they very much cutting edge? They're all really in it, or we're just starting for these types of companies to use it, use it, and the productivity boom that we can see is just getting started. I think it's just getting started now. Of course, we have dozens and dozens of the world's leading companies as our clients. So, as a business, I could tell you, you know, that the adoption is there. Uh, for example, National Grid of the UK, for example, Shell, for example, BP, the US Air Force, the US Navy, Aramco, Xerox. There's a large number of companies that everyone in the world recognizes. These are big brand names that all work with us to solve these problems. But in the larger scheme of things, what is our goal? See, our goal is around uh, AI for infrastructure. We want to be the AI-powered operating system for global infrastructure. And the reason we want to do that is because there's about $100 trillion worth of physical infrastructure in the world. That's it? And we, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, here's uh, that's actually not that much because over the next probably two to three decades, we'll put in an additional $100 trillion. Oh, wow. And all of this is stuff that is almost impossible to rip and replace, right? No country has the capability, the financial wherewithal to go in and say, okay, I've just built a better oil rig, and now I'm going to change all my existing oil rigs with this new oil rig. You can't do that. You've got to keep these systems around for decades. And so when you, when you have to do that, you've got to think about, well, how am I going to make these things run better without ripping and replacing them? And the answer in almost every case is by making them smarter. So making them safer means embedding them with intelligence that can detect threats. Making them more reliable and creating more uptime means embedding them with intelligence that can predict and resolve failures at the fraction of the price and the time. Making them produce more means optimality baked into every element of individual assets and collective assets such as fields. So at that level, the potential is limitless, and this can really refactor uh, manufacturing, power, energy, the way that all of this is used on Earth, and that's a huge, huge promise. Now, how far along are we on that axis? Well, we're just at the very beginning, even though large companies are beginning to adopt this technology. You know, this is a play for the balance of this century. We've got to make sure that the infrastructure that we put in now and the infrastructure that already exists much of which has a multi-decade lifespan remaining, that all of that is optimized with AI. So it's, it's a long-term play. It's a play for the patient. But ultimately, it's one of the most important things that I think we can do as, um, as inventors, as business people, as AI practitioners, as governments, as, as human beings are alive on this planet. I can see, and I'm joking aside, like that it's somewhat easier to build an AI for the next hundred trillion when you say, okay, we, we want things software enabled. We think that going forward. For the things that already are in their lifespan, though, and that kind of backwards compatibility, how do we think about connecting in, whether it's physical infrastructure that's there that has no connectivity, no software structured, or just, you know, old, right? How how do we it may still have, as you said, like 10, 20, 30 years of lifespan left that we want to be able to enhance it. Yeah. So, I mean, we do that all the time. Uh, as an example, we have a contract uh, with AFRL and the Air Force on F-16 maintenance. Now, you can imagine this is a platform that came to life in the 70s. It's going to be around probably till the 2070s. So it's going to be a roughly 100-year platform. And it's the most numerous fighter aircraft in the world. 
Now, m- much of the documentation about that platform going back to the 70s is all paper records. You know, what got changed, what, how was an airframe maintained, what fix actually resolved issue and so on. And in that case, of course, now we've got a lot of systems that can automate the process of ingesting all of that data that might exist as written notes or old style records and so on. So that's one way. The other way, of course, is that you can go into a warehouse which has no sensors at all. And we've done this multiple times where we just simply deploy cameras of time to the CCTV cameras that already exist at that warehouse. And now suddenly the entire warehouse is intelligent because our vision algorithms are so sophisticated. Uh, they can now, with no sensors on the actual equipment itself, they can track where every box is. They can track where every worker is. They can figure out whether, whether the worker is wearing PPE, the personal protective equipment. They can figure out whether a conveyor belt is running where one of the gear guards has been removed and therefore it's unsafe to approach that conveyor belt. And whether the person approaching the conveyor belt is authorized to approach the conveyor belt. So uh, the level of vision capability that our VIA product has, we've been able to build it in places with no sensors, with no computers, with no AI. And just the level of visual perception and the tie-ins with other planning algorithms, other intelligence algorithms. This is not about detecting objects. This is not about here's the box and here's a car. This is about multi-frame projections of what might actually happen in the future based on what I'm looking at now. And therefore, what do I need to do to intervene? So I've given you two examples, one in the domain of text uh, with a system that existed prior to mainstream AI. And another with, you know, warehouses and factories all over the world today where they don't have any sensors. We don't tell them, hey, you know, throw out all your existing equipment and buy new equipment. We just say, look, uh, we just tap into your CCTV and suddenly your entire factory will become intelligent and it will come alive. And that's just very powerful to see happen. How do you think about the nature of the quick changing nature of AI hardware? And I mean, in the case of, you know, you've seen the humane pin, you've seen the glasses, you've seen now uh, the explosion of humanoid robots, where we are now being able to better interact. And I don't know what the, what the physical component or what it's going to end up looking like, right? We're, We're very early stage, but being able to integrate AI into the physical world, how that hardware looks is is rapidly shifting and the funding going into it is is exploding. So how are you thinking about that from your perspective? Yeah, I think, look, uh, AI at the edge is, uh, is, it just makes all the sense in the world. It has to be done. To give you an example, you know, we work very closely with Boeing. Uh, we've got a joint venture with Boeing. In fact, also in the aviation space, if you think about drones, like they are robots, right? They're flying computers in the sky. And there's millions and millions of them being built now. So think about it. There's a flying computer in the sky with a network connection. Would you want it to be able to defend itself? Would you want it to have some cyber capabilities? If we want millions of these in the skies integrated safely, how will they defend themselves? You can't have a pilot on there. So you've got to have AI at the edge. Uh, And so we invested in software of exactly that type. We've developed software that can actually, you know, sit on a drone autonomously uh, watch for and, and fend off attacks without requiring any uh, dial home capability. Comms link is compromised or is jammed or blocked or for whatever reason, the drone can't reach a human operator. Uh, there's autonomous software sitting on the drone that can uh, protect the drone. So this is one example of why edge AI is so important. You've got to be able to execute right where it matters. 
imagine a U.S. Navy ship operating in the Pacific under, you know, heavy uh, electronic warfare. And, and, and there, you don't want to say, hey, you know, let me check with the cloud. Let me check what I need right. to do next. On, uh, you know, you're not going to have any cloud connectivity. You've got to do this all local. So, and then in the consumer case, you know, there's latency and there's other reasons to have local compute. So this kind of inference capability, not training a model, but inference capability at the edge, I think is step one. Then continuous learning while actually training or at least fine tuning models at the edge is step two. But I think that this is clearly going to be a trend that will go all the way to what I call embodiment, what what the industry calls embodiment. This idea of taking, uh, you know, near human level intelligence in certain areas and finally marrying that into a humanoid-like robot form. I'm involved with a few robotics companies that are very exciting, that are building humanoid robots. My wife and I have invested in a few. Uh, And I am really looking forward to the time where uh, these two technologies merge because I think that uh, has just tremendous potential. The world has been designed to be operated by uh, beings that look like human beings. And, uh, you know, much of the physical world has been uh, optimized and, and, and caters to our form. So once I think we can put intelligence, synthetic intelligence in a structure, in a body, in a shape that is compatible with the built world, I think we get a lot out of that. You know, the, the fun applications like go fetch me a Diet Coke from the fridge, sure. But uh, beyond that, also run a warehouse and, you know, and, and rescue somebody and uh, go fly a helicopter that's been built for a human being to fly. And, you know, bringing intelligence to where human beings have brought it, which is to every nook and cranny of the built world. That's, that's exciting. Well, and I think it's interesting that it kind of brings into a little bit of the, the, the Austin element of this, because this, this convergence of, you know, the physical world and the digital world, which is where I kind of think a lot of, I think Austin shines because you know, we have multiple AI companies here. We have multiple, you know, robotics and AI companies here. Uh, one thing, and I want to kind of pull a thread on why maybe you think of something like drones as well. Like the amount of drone companies here, whether they be for, you know, fun, whether they be for defense or law enforcement, what is it? And, and you've been here and you came out of like UT as well, that makes it that kind of zeitgeist of the physical meets the digital. Like, why do you think that, that, that does so well uh, in Austin? You know, um, in October of 2000, uh, I was interviewed by Money Magazine. And there was a journalist by the name of Rob Walker that came to Austin and he did a big story about Austin and exactly the kind of question you're asking now, like, you know, the technology-fueled growth of Austin and what will happen and so on. And back in 2000, there were people in both camps. There was a strong camp that didn't want Austin to grow and wanted to kind of have it maintain what was then called the slacker culture based off of that very famous film, you know, Slackers, that was set here in Austin. And so the whole premise of the article uh, in this in this Money Magazine piece was, you know, what's going to happen? And so that, that whole article is really about people that were prominent in Austin back in the day uh, saying what they thought would happen. And my view... Which, he closes the article on that was, and of course I was a kid, so it was a it was a prediction which I kind of lucked out on. But basically, what I said was that listen, there is no middle ground. Uh, there's a lot of people that talk about reaching this middle ground in Austin, and that's never going to happen. The middle ground is always just this kind of fallacy. You know, you're either declining and you temporarily happen to go through a place that kind of 
feels comfortable and it feels like a middle ground or you're growing and you go through that but there is no stagnation there is no stopping at a place i think austin has kind of had that dynamism where austin has been willing to grow austin has been brave enough to grow not every place in the world is like this you know that paris um, a long time ago set limits on how big paris could get mm. well when you do things like that you set limits on who all you will contain within this uh, within this place called paris and austin hasn't been like that it's been academically driven so i would say that a big chunk of the reason why austin is as uh, amazing as it as it is is because of ut austin no question about that number 6 computer science department number 1 in civil engineering number 1 in accounting uh, you know now just built the world's most powerful laser with tac which is the texas advanced computing center one of the top 10 supercomputers in the world uh just an amazing place you know where the spike protein for the covid virus was discovered the list of innovations here are just like mind blowing and it's it's a long list of innovations so this is the engine and then the culture of austin is such that it's been open uh, you know i might be wrong here and off by 5% but not by more than that like masters and phd students in the us that are doing computer science and electrical engineering Uh, if you look at that population of students like 75 or 80% of them are foreign born mm-hmm. so what's been driving austin's technology prowess and growing footprint and importance uh, are a combination of these things the excellent academics at ut austin the open culture of austin and austin's ability to embrace growth particularly bringing in people that are brilliant and bright from all over the world 80% of whom happen to not even have been born in this country as long as that continues austin is going to be uh, an amazing place when that stops austin will cease to be an amazing place this is the history of the world there was once a time when baghdad was the center of the earth uh where the house of wisdom existed in baghdad then cordoba became the center of the earth and then these things moved from greece to rome to cordoba to baghdad uh, eventually to the united states as long as people are enlightened then knowledge thrives in those places when people close their eyes and become let's just say less friendly to intellectual growth then knowledge leaves those places so so far i think austin's done well i think also one of the things and i've i've pushed this a lot on the podcast is the key is being a unique identity like uh i've always hated the uh, and people uh, probably get sick of me hearing this I, i hate the silicon xyz like silicon valley should keep that but the silicon hills silicon beach silicon alley you are attempting to copy and you'll just be a you know a pale facsimile and especially as you think about the things that as we're talking about here like the the things that make austin unique and different are our own strengths is are going to be you you want to be the first austin not the second you know, not the second bay area and yep. and i think in these cases right and there becomes these kind of first principles of a ecosystem and as you line up with those that's where the flywheel comes in right and so one of the things is that and i and i've said this before and why i thought it was really interesting when you know when we were first talking and wanting to bring you on was that i do think that the the physical meets the digital is where Austin sits and really bringing those forth whether it be in as you said like the industrial AI or these robotics and how we think about that differently versus like hey if you're going to go build the foundational AI models like 
go to San Francisco. That's where it's happening, right? Like that that yeah. makes sense, right? And so and I think about that just differently and how 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 we build things here. Like you have, you know, te- the Tesla factory here, you have the Samsung factory here. And I just I think it's it's a different type of mentality of what we are building here and to be 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 that different, right? I couldn't agree with you more. You know, uh, you may have heard this expression, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. That's an Oscar Wilde quote, and it's incomplete. That's not the whole quote. The quote is that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery that mediocrity pays to greatness. Ah. So your point about uh, being Silicon Hills and this and that, uh, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery that mediocrity pays to greatness. I've never wanted to be mediocre and I don't want to be part of a culture that aspires to mediocrity. So I agree with you 100%. I don't think we should look to be this silicon or that silicon. We should just look to be Austin and just do amazing things that people respect us for in this world. Uh, and and to, to make that practical, I'll tell you, you know, with Boeing, uh, we have a tremendous partnership. And I was very, very happy and actually proud to bring Boeing to Austin in the sense that we did a joint venture with them very first company that combines this, you know, the amazing capabilities of a 105, 170-year-old aviation company with the cutting-edge capabilities of an AI software company. Uh, That first joint venture being established in Austin sets a trend. It says the physical and the virtual, you know, the physical systems that have reshaped Earth where, you know, 60% of the aviation business roughly is, is Boeing driven. And now you've got artificial intelligence as a, as, as a key component to that and Spark Cognition as a key partner to that. And where is that based? That's based in Austin, Texas. Uh, you see companies that are doing robots. You see companies that are doing rockets. And you also see companies that are doing artificial intelligence to enable all of that. So, yeah, I think this is where the Army's future command is, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of unique things in Austin that uh, should contribute to the types of ideas that come out of here naturally without us wanting to put a moniker or a sticker or a label on who we are and, and a label hopefully that you know sounds like somebody else's cool label like what that's that's pretty lame in my view i think we should be who we are and not look to be like others well and i think a lot of it also is not just it's not just being innovators i think it's also being thought leaders and philosophers and in, in, in showing kind of what comes next. And, and it's a wonderful segue I'm going with here. Uh, because I know that you had, you know, you have a recent book out called Generative AI for Leaders. And we have this explosion, you know, that we've had over the last year with, you know, just barely 14 months later since ChatGPT. And um, I know it's been a little bit longer for, for generative AI in total, but how are you, you know, through your book, how are you telling people and instructing to think differently about AI innovations in impacting leadership versus previous technological innovations? Well, I mean, I think, you know, look, uh, the, the first thing is AI is a mental amplifier. And specifically when it comes to ideation, it's the most powerful mental amplifier. Even before chat GPT, you know, I write a column for Forbes. So some years ago, I had published, and I'm, I write poems as well. I published a, an article where I, um, you know, introduced a couple of poems that I had written with, uh, in, in collaboration with an AI that I had written. So I've been using generative techniques for a long time for both work and play. And having been exposed to them for so many years, I know how powerful they are. You know, another Austinite, Doug Leonard, 
uh, built a system in the 70s called Eurisco, uh, maybe late 70s or 80s. And that system, through, again, techniques that were prevalent at that time, uh, it was a form of generative AI. It came up with the design of a 3D junction in VLSI, uh, chip design. So we already know that uh, artificial intelligence can be used to make inventions, to give us, you know, beautiful poems, to give us things that uh, our mind alone cannot come up with. And that is a mental amplifier in that sense. So uh, one thing that I focus on in the book is, okay, in a practical sense, what can artificial intelligence help do in a company today? So one is around ideation, product design, things like that, but then also code generation now. A lot of companies are really running today on code, CAD, and CAM. Uh, this is uh, kind of uh, one of the quick ways of describing this. I was talking to some friends at uh, Lockheed and Boeing, and, and I said this to them, and it kind of struck a chord. Because if you think about, you know, what is a Boeing aircraft? It's CAD. It's a, it's a design built on a computer. It's computer-aided design. It's code. So every aspect of that aircraft is controlled by code. And then it's CAM. It's computer-aided manufacturing. These three things coming together are really what the Boeing company does. But it also, by the way, is what the Ford company does and what the Tesla company does and what uh, Mercedes does and so on and so forth. So if you can think of applying generative AI to something like code, CAD, and GAN, which now increasingly algorithms have been developed to do all three of these things, well, then what do you have left? You have ideation, you have production, you have all of these aspects. You also have documentation and quality assurance and so on. So the way I, I've uh, approached this book, my previous book, The Sentient Machine, was more in the realm of ideas, was a little more philosophical, was really wondering what the place of human beings is in a world driven by artificial intelligence. But it definitely uh, talked about a world in which artificial intelligence inevitably is going to become a key player. And uh, it's going to be, you know, my belief has always been that uh, artificial intelligence will be human level and better. So. Uh, that book took a more philosophical view of this and, and what is the, the, the place of humanity in such a world. Uh, but then this book, Generative AI for Leaders, is very practical. It lists you know dozens and dozens of specific things you can do in a company with Generative AI today. It talks about uh, several use cases like Airbus using Generative AI to design structures that go into aircraft that have high strength but low weight and improve uh, fuel consumption. It talks about how Spark Cognition is working with Shell to apply generative AI to discover uh, subsea structures and improve seismic imaging and numerous other cases like that. So this is a highly practical book. It's meant to be both a gentle introduction as well as a step-by-step -step guide. How do you design a team inside a company to help you apply generative AI? How do you think about partnerships? Things of that nature. It's funny. I was, you know, the right now uh, as we're recording this, the you know the J.P. Morgan Health Conference is going on. I, I, I kind of read a funny piece is that every entrepreneur or corporate leader that's being that's kind of uh, presenting is getting asked the question. Okay, so what, what's your AI strategy? And uh, yeah, I want to ask you, kind of in light of the book, is 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 that even the the right way to frame the question? Well, I mean, it's like saying, what what is your physics strategy? <laughs> You're building planes. What's your physics strategy? Or don't fall. In the, yeah, in the in the world of finance, like you know, it's like what is your mathematics strategy, right? So AI is a is a field of study. AI is a science that's that's broadly applicable to so many different things because it's relatively new and because people that are uh, 
not from the AI domain are wanting to talk about what they're doing to keep up with this, you know, this uh, this really hot topic, and and they want to impress in boardrooms and so on. I can see that. That's just human nature. It happens. So you say, you know, this is my AI strategy, etc. The real question is, well, what is your strategy to evolve your company in a world where multiple exponential technologies are essentially undermining almost every assumption that you have made about your business, about your competition, and about your consumers? That is um, a really and, scary question, though. <laughs> I know. And so most people want to avoid questions like that. So they take little slivers of it at a time. But fundamentally, that's where the world is going right now. If you want to understand the world holistically, you have to be fairly brave to open your eyes to the truth first. The world is shifting from the conventional power structures that we've had for the longest time since the Second World. Uh, the position of the West is no longer what it was, and I think it's irrecoverably so. This is my view. I think from a moral, economic, military, all of these perspectives, the position of the West that it has enjoyed for decades and decades is over and done with. And you can argue about that. You can try and want to bring back the past, but the past isn't going to come back. So now the question is, in this new world, what do you do? Do you have a sanctions-based mentality to technology, or do you have an engagement-based mentality to technology? Do you look at others as people that you want to keep your technology from, or do you want to look at others as markets to whom you can sell your technology to, to gain capital to then stay ahead? Are you thinking like a monopolist or are you thinking like a startup entrepreneur? And I'm talking about that from the point of view of our politicians, not just our CEOs. Um, every assumption that we had about the dominance of our automotive industry, the dominance of our aviation industry, the dominance of our space industry, all of these things would be challenged. The dominance of our computing industry, our software industry. There's nothing that we can do that fundamentally somewhat, someone somewhere else in the world can't. If we believe in human equality, that we believe in the equality of capability. So no matter what somebody's color is or what their religion is, if we can come up with an algorithm, why can't somebody else in another part of the world come up with an algorithm? So when you make those assumptions about how communication has balanced the flow of knowledge from one part of the world to another, uh, and then you look at what happens over the next 10, 15 years in this holistic evolution of technology and international relations and strategic balance and uh, other very fluid, high-velocity uh, exponential technologies in space and other places, and all of this coalescing to lead to a, a future that's shaped not just by AI or software, but by all of these things happening together in a dynamic way. Well, that's the real question to ask for big companies and for big government. For a small company, you can always identify a small niche and say, I'm going to just be the best at this. And no matter how the world around me evolves, this is my business and that's what I do. But not everyone, not every leader will have the luxury of looking at life uh, through those blinders or with the aid of those blinders. I think uh, the really big leaders uh, that, uh, that make the big bucks and uh, have the trust of a large number of people, those people need to take off the blinders and see the reality that exists before them as what it is and not what they conveniently wish for it. Well, so it gets back to the comment you made before talking about like, you know, edge AI. And do you see the future of some of this technology being extraordinarily expensive, extraordinarily large, so it'll obviously coalesce into, you know, similar to what we have with cloud, like two or three winners, 
or are we going to be able to have small, robust, you know, either open source and you can have 20 or 30 different small winners. Yeah. And then on top of that, you said layering on, we've got quantum, we've got a number of different types of emergent technologies that look very similar. I mean, if you think about quantum computing the same way, at least as we look at it right now, building a quantum computer is quite expensive and quite, uh, you know, quite capital yeah. intensive. So how do you see this kind of playing out? And obviously then I'll come back to you in 10 years and see how to play it. <laughs> The thing about quantum computing is that the people that are the best in quantum computing, like Scott Aronson here at UT is possibly one of the top people, well, not possibly one of the top people, possibly the top person in quantum computing when it comes to algorithms and theory. Uh, and all my conversations with him lead to the same conclusion, which is that what quantum computing would actually be good for, for example, in machine learning and artificial intelligence, we don't quite yet know. So, in fact, uh, you know, just this year, uh, in the last few weeks, Two major Chinese companies have divested of their uh, of their uh, quantum computing research units. So, look, what comes of quantum computing, we don't yet know, but there are so many other technologies. You talked about edge AI. Will there be one winner or two winners, or will there be a more distributed sort of a level playing field? I think in the near term, sure, there might be one or two companies that take the lead, like with GPUs and VDS taking the lead. But what generally happens is that these leads tend to last for not too long because now we live in a world where there are two relatively disconnected ecosystems, the Chinese tech ecosystem and the, the, the U.S. tech ecosystem. China has already shown that they have achieved uh, far greater and faster progress with small feature design chips, cutting edge chips. Huawei has come up with chips that they've used to now train very large LLMs. So at the very least, because of the intersection of geopolitics and technology, we know that there will be two ecosystems and one might be 10% behind the other, but this is a highly parallelizable task. So you just go buy 10% more GPUs and you're there. So it's not really a limiting factor from that point. The second thing is that at the low end, when it comes to inference-based systems, uh, there are architectures like RISC-V, which I'm personally very excited about. It's an open source processor architecture and Sci-5 and many other companies are investing in the uh, conversion of this open source design into actual chips. Uh, I actually have a RISC-V board that I'm playing around with and learning more about it. So I think around this open source architecture, you'll start to see lots of additional capabilities, uh, NPUs or neural processing units that have been uh, embedded within the architecture of many of these uh, single uh, SOC you know, chip designs. Uh, that's going to become more of a thing. So I, I don't think that there's going to be like, a, you know, one company that wins it all when it comes to edge AI. I think there's going to be lots of ways in which you can execute uh, these, these workloads. Also, algorithms for inference are becoming better. The data sets, the, uh, you know, this whole idea of taking floating point numbers and reducing the accuracy and going floating point to int and reducing the amount of bandwidth that you need and the compute capacity that you need on an edge chip to do inference, that's happening. So there's all this concurrent work that I think will allow for lots of approaches. The, the, the only other thing I'll tell you is that, you know, between quantum and edge and conventional uh, chip design, and, and there's a whole bunch of things, you know, like there's membranes, uh, membranes and uh, there's uh, all sorts of other alternate computing architectures that are ready to sort of, you know, see the light of day and what happens with them, who knows. Ultimately, I think this is 
you know, people all over the world will be able to run AI workloads. No one company can control this. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation and I really appreciate it. Uh, always end with the same question. So Amir, what's next, Austin? What's next, Austin? Uh, you know, I think um, what I would like to see in Austin is really useful autonomy. And I don't mean that just in the, in the, uh, in the context of, uh, of uh, self-driving cars. I mean that in the context of self-managing infrastructure. I would like Austin to be the uh, birthplace uh, that crucible within which this new type of technology is formed, where systems that can take care of themselves, that are entirely self-contained, that can run on their own, optimize themselves, resolve issues within themselves to the maximum degree possible can become the new infrastructure of this planet. And if that is a gift that Austin can give to the world, it would be one of the greatest gifts ever. Because like I said, all of human progress, our quality of life, everything is dependent on infrastructure. If we can do really, really intelligent infrastructure that increases the output and the outcome that it creates at lower cost uh, without requiring huge teams of very sophisticated, educated people to maintain them, then this infrastructure can power the world. It can bring prosperity to eight and a half, ten billion people on this planet. And it can once again position our country, our state, our city as one of the places that gave birth to an idea that changed everything. And that to me is possibly one of the greatest things we can do. And what else would one want to do in one's life? That would be a huge contribution. Again, the physical meeting the digital. I, I love it. Thank you so much for joining the show. All right, Jason, thank you so much. So what's next, Austin? We're glad you've joined us on this journey. Please subscribe at your favorite podcast catcher. Leave us a review and let your colleagues know about us. This will help us grow the podcast and continue bringing you unique interviews and insights. Thanks again for listening and see you soon.